Welcome back to There's Something About Dolomite. I'm Brandon Jenkins, and this week, we're talking all about sassy supermamas. Blaxploitation is credited with breaking the mold when it came to storylines involving Black characters and birthing a new crop of talent, both on and off camera. But for all the doors it's kicked open, rules it rewrote, and opportunity it created, it often engaged in the same old two-step of problematic portrayals of women, specifically Black women. Often women were relegated as mere sexual objects. Props used to bolster the status of the film's male lead. You don't have to look far either with these types of depictions rampant and out in the open. Like in 1974's Willie Dynamite, a story of an enterprising pimp on a quest to be the baddest Mac in New York City. I mean, just listen to the film's trailer. Willie Dynamite. Seven women in the palm of his hand. Willie D. Willie D. Got a woman for every man. Willie D. Willie D. There were slight exceptions to this norm. Every woman that breaks the screen wasn't always an extra or a minor character. Think Tamara Dobson, who starred as Cleopatra Jones in 1973 movie of the same name. Tamara Dobson, the Soul Sisters answer to James Bond, and the most exciting new star in years. Six feet two of dynamite, and it's all stacked. I told you! Jones posing as a model was also a crime-fighting federal agent on a mission to rid her community of drugs and the people who profit from them. She was independent, but her relationship with her boyfriend was the driving force. Dobson's character is maybe the closest the genre gets to gender equality, with Cleopatra exhibiting a unique take as a pioneering, sophisticated heroine in a film devoid of hypersexualization and service to men. And you cannot discuss the era of black exploitation without talking about Pam Greer. For me, she's really the first person that comes to mind when I say the word black exploitation. Greer, in many ways, came to embody the era due to her prominence as the genre's leading lady, starring in well over a dozen films such as Coffee, Hitman, Scream Blackula Scream, Sheba Baby, and of course, Foxy Brown. You think you're back in with those people, but they gotta stick a dynamite up your ass and the fuse is burning. You understand me? Now I want you out. Who does she think she is? Well, that's my sister, baby. And she's a whole lot of woman. Greer's characters in these films have some variation, but there are trends that persist. Many of her roles provide contrast to the soft, meek roles that women of all races were being offered at this time. Like Dobson, she took on the role of heroines that often kick ass and have a certain prowess and resolve. A woman that can hop in the driver's seat and get to where she needs to go. But across these films, she almost always is defined through the lens of male fantasy. A sexy chick who, despite her other attributes, is first and foremost desirable to all men. She's sweet brown sugar with a touch of spice. You see a man anywhere, send him in, because I do need a man. And consider that she was a star of the movement. Like, this is fucking Pam Greer we're talking about. The queen of black exploitation. This says nothing of all the other roles divvied out to women working in these films. From extras to supporting cast members. Many of these characters were often subjugated to hoes, dancers, sidekicks, or just some fly ladies that let the male characters and the movie-going audience know if you want it, you can have it. With these issues still holding weight, but often on the fringes of popular culture, we decided to center today's discussion on black women's presence and black exploitation. We want to better understand the women who came to prominence in the era 
the characters they played, the forces in society that contributed to these roles, and the lasting impact of black exploitation's portrayal of women in our modern cultural movement. Let's jump right into it. And here with me now is Stephanie Dunn, filmmaker, professor at Morales College, and the author of Bad Bitches and Sassy Supermamas. How are you? How are you today, Brandon? Glad to be with you. I'm doing pretty good. Um, before we dive into talking about Cleopatra Jones and Foxy Brown, can you briefly describe the characters and who they are, as in what they do, and just a general recap of each of them? So the three films that I are sort of the iconic female, black female centered vehicles in that era are Coffee, Foxy Brown, and Cleopatra Jones. Coffee and Foxy Brown starred the uh, stars, of course, the unforgettable Pam Greer, Miss Pam Greer. And in Cleopatra Jones and its sequels, um, Tamara Dobson is the lead actress. And in Coffee and Foxy Brown, Pam Greer portrays really sort of working class uh, woman who encounters uh, reasons to take revenge, to go on basically a female revenge journey. In Foxy Brown, it's when her lover is killed. And that's the second film. In Coffee, it's her baby sister is hooked on drugs and she's going to take down basically the drug cartel. And so she does, um, in part by going in disguise, going, quote, undercover, if you will, um, as a prostitute to infiltrate um, the organizations. And in Cleopatra Jones, Miss Tamara Dobson, a uh, model in uh, real life, plays a, a special agent to the U.S. government whose um, mission is to basically stop the, the, in, the flow of drugs from Turkey in the film into the ghetto uh, and the community to, that she's from. And so that's basically um, sort of the plots of the three films. A lot of your book, uh, I want to get Bad Bitches and Sassy Supermamas. <laughs> a lot. I love the title. Yeah, you just love that title. I can tell. <laughs> in your book, you talk about um, at this point in time, you know, having a love-hate relationship with these um, these characters. I think you've, you kind of describe it as the Barbie doll narrative. Sure. I mean, it's it's sort of this thing. On the one hand, there's this like sort of exciting sort of like, Black badassness, if I can say that on the screen, but that's the name of the title of the book, almost. Yeah, so, right? you can go ahead. <laughs> right, so I can say that. And so there's that, right? In your face, I mean, at the end, they win, right? They they get the bad guys, and they're the last one standing. And it's it's true in Shaft, it's true in Superfly, it's true in Coffee, Foxy Brown, Cleopatra Jones, for the most part. But then along the way, there's all of this sort of like there's rape and. You know, and there's prostitution and there's the women, you know, being relegated to, in, especially in the male starring ones, right, to being sort of basically bitches and hoes, even by name, right? So it's part of the stable. And uh, even in the female-led version ones where you're loving the beautiful Pam Greer and the beautiful um, Tamara Dobson on screen live and in such beautiful color, you know, they, they are quite sexualized, right, quite objectified, obviously. They're, they're there to really elicit that male gaze, that traditional male gaze. You do, you look up to them because they exist, you know, and they're showing um, an aspect maybe that people hadn't seen before in film, but also they're, they're um, kind of on loop and repeating a lot of poisonous or toxic ideas. Is there a moment where you ever had to stop 
engaging with it or will you just kind of um, brush it off and keep moving? Well, there's, there's two parts to that. I remember um, something that I read that Bell Hook said a long time ago, and it really stayed with me, really resonated, that films were, you know, right, a mix that were filled with sort of conservative and radical, you know, sort of, right, um, points. And they are. And I think that's true of a lot of films. Those films are just uh, graphically because of the time period. And you got a lot of those B grade action films, not just so called black exploitation, right? With all of that sort of like X rated or, you know, extra R rated sort of graphic material, right? Gra- very excessive sort of language that's sexualized and racialized and all of that stuff. And so on the the one hand, you know, I understand it in its time and its place, but also celebrate it for those films really marking how we were transitioning and grappling, right, with the radical movements and their impact on the social and cultural and political fabric of American life, right? I mean, the feminist movement black feminist movement, the um, the uh, black liberation struggle, obviously, with the black power movement and the civil rights movement, all of these currents. So these films really come out of all of that transition and all of that like sort of wonderful, you know, we're going to, you know, shake things up and change the, trans- the, the status quo. They represent that. But as happens a lot, they got very watered down and exploited in, in some ways in terms of it becoming sort of this sort of, you know, um, sort of formulaic thing, mm-hmm. right? The black power figure minus really sort of a logical or rational sort of like, right, really sort of plan for revolution as it really was in real life. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to focus uh, more specifically on the two characters you brought up. Um, you brought up Cleopatra Jones, which was played by uh, Tamara Dobson and Foxy Brown, um, which starred Pam Greer. And you've talked a lot about how they parallel one another and also um, sort of the predicaments that they'd find themselves in in these, in these black exploitation films. But um, when you look at their Venn diagram, what ways are they different? Well, they're very different, and I think very purposefully, because Pam Greer, you know, created by Jack Hills, her character is by Jack Hill and um, American International Pictures, and then if I recall correctly, Cleopatra Jones, you know, is this major studio, right, and traditional studio it came out of. So there was, obviously, when you look at them, sort of, I think, an attempt to, first of all, sort of corral the success of the one, I believe that it was Foxy might have preceded, came before, I think, Coffee or vice versa, but they came out roughly within the, the same sort of 18 months or 24 months, these these films, mm-hmm. between 73 and 74. And the one was sort of the more um, the more uh, PG-rated, badass, you know, like black, you know, heroine film. And that was Cleopatra Jones, right? They, you know, took away the sort of overt sexualization of the theme, right, and the plot that was in Coffee and Foxy Brown. And you have her elevated to a special agent for the government, right? And so she's empowered in ways that the characters that Pam Greer played, specifically in Coffee and Foxy Brown, are not. She's, you know, a working class girl, right, who seizes, right, the uh, a mission, a revenge mission, so to speak. And with Cleopatra Jones, it's not pivoted as or, or sort of situated as a revenge mission, per se, right, cleaning up 
the um, the drugs infiltration and the bad guys who bring it in. It's it's more of it's part of her government mission that has her community and origins in it as an added sort of right um, importance to the work that she's empowered to do by the government. She's, you know, literally, you know, turned or modeled after James Bond. So she's very James Bond-like, mm. right? Black action sort of female heroine character. Um, what are some of the other ways that actresses in these films were affected by these types of roles, good or bad? Well, I think that here's the thing about these films. They started a lot of the careers of people, right? Like Pam Greer and Richard Roundtree and uh, and many others who endured and and we would we we've seen for some years now and have lived beyond that moment to star in many other things, to be in many other things, to show their you know their talent in their acting chops beyond those sort of iconic characters. And that's really um, a beautiful thing that it that genre gave some black directors and folks an opportunity uh, into the Hollywood door as as you know writers or directors and actors and so forth i mean the great gordon parks directed shaft right so yep. there's there's that and his son superfly and so you you had some of their creative ideals being able to be that right but then what happens is that those talents weren't really maximized because they got pension hold you know these talents they got confined and that was unfortunate because Hollywood had, you know, was notoriously and still is notoriously sort of faddish and about, you know, economics. So it was good as long as the getting is good. But then what about all of that black talent? Yeah. I want to take a look at just some of the perception of the characters on screen, uh, namely the costumes and the way that their bodies were portrayed. How were they largely used in these in black exploitation films? So if you're talking about costuming and wardrobe in relation to black exploitation films generally, where there were more male vehicles, male-led, male-starring vehicles. Mm -hmm. And those vehicles, obviously, were Shaft, Superfly, Black Caesar, Godfather, all of those, you know, films that we see. Women are, are of course, you know, dressed, you know, very from either very sexually because they're always situated to appeal to their man, right? And it doesn't matter how many women he might have. The point is, if she's the main sister or what have you, right, there's still this sort of like kind of sexualization. Or sometimes if she's the good girl girlfriend, you know, we may see her in her work gear, be that as a nurse usually or something, you know, something akin to that. And you think about women, of course, Ruby D was already doing her thing and other characters, but they were not in these starring sort of roles and vehicles, and certainly not, they were usually the wives or the girlfriend, right? Certainly not as badass characters, action characters. I guess when you look at the lasting impact of that, I'm wondering, how do people come to terms with this? You know, how, how are you watching this film and maybe being one of the early depictions of a black woman in some agency, but then also seeing all the circumstances that she's placed in? The way that we come to terms with sort of the the warring currents in these films that are, you know, tagged in this black exploitation genre, like Coffee and Cleopatra Jones and even Shaft, the male vehicle ones, is that we, we recall and we remember that this has been our dilemma since the inception, though, of American cinema as a major form of entertainment. But at the same time, black spectators have not been blind, right, 
to the problematic representations of themselves. So they may fall in love with an imitation of life, right? Like they might a Foxy Brown because we love we love the the story of someone trying to make it, a woman trying to make it, right? Or a woman trying to get revenge because people have, you know, hooked her her young sister on drugs. We we get that. We feel that, right? And we love that we are being wrapped into a narrative that is about women. But that doesn't mean that we don't then go, wait, whoa, right? When she is part of that narrative is she's raped or she's on the floor groveling in front of the the white guy, the white criminal, like, you know, uh, even if she even though she's at quote acting. Right. This is the story within the story. We we see that, too. And we're not naive to it. We're not going, oh, this is this is cool. Not not by a long shot. We're disturbed in those moments. So I, I'm saying that. Our history with black exploitation, our love for it, is not a blind love. Mm. And that hasn't been the case for our navigation as moviegoers in American cinema in the first place, well before the 1970s films. Okay. I was going to say, like, it's sort of like you have to, again, like you have to be able to um, hold them both in your hands and, and appreciate it, but then also critique. And I think that's fair, especially as a true fan. Absolutely. And that's what true fans do. It's like you don't really have to love everything about it to love it. It's, it, you know, that's ridiculous. It's like, I love that movie, but I hated the ending. How many times do we say things like that, right? I loved it, but I hated that ending. Like, why did they do that? Yeah. <sighs> but we love it. Well, now fast forwarding to today or just the time since these films. Um, in what ways have you seen these portrayals of women in black exploitation films have a lasting effect in pop culture and film today? So one of the things that fascinated me about that, the genre that gave us Coffee and Foxy Brown and Shaft and so forth, is the way that they live on. And so even into my high school and college years, what was so utterly fascinating to me is to be part of a generation listening to um, rappers like Foxy Brown, who named herself after Foxy Brown, which I talk about in my book, right? And Little Kim and taking on just these monikers of like, quote, the bad bitch, right? So you see all of these sort of influences that live on in generations that weren't even alive yet to go to these movies. Mm -hmm. And yet people like Snoop Dogg, right? I mean, who is Snoop without Superfly? Yeah. You know, the influence of him. You can't even imagine something like that. And we know that from Afini Shakur, um, that Tupac, you know, ate up these films like it did Scarface, right? These black exploitation films. They all saw these films and loved these films. And what's interesting is that we keep going back to 70s culture, which is sometimes, I think, pop culture, you know, this sort of uh, sort of um, goofy, sort of like the, you know, fun sort of flower child sort of era, you know, Charlie's Angels, right? This, this stuff that was completely fantastical, right? Mm-hmm. But we keep remaking them. Okay. Final question. What three films are a must-watch for you? Of the genre that we 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 say is, you know, the black exploitation genre or and the female ones or what? I would say just the genre at large. Okay, see now now you're really wrong. Because that's <laughs> that's like act asking me, you know, to name the most important three books or something. And so but I will name um three of them, but I resist the notion that they are the ones you gotta watch because I'm just, I still go oh then maybe I should be naming the other one soon as I say that right but absolutely Shaft is there mm-hmm. and then see 
I'm going to defy the rules and I'm going to say um, one has got two. Number two has two films. Foxy Brown, Cleopatra Jones. See, I said them almost together so they can count as one. They're equals. Okay. See what I'm saying? And then I would say that um, number three, I'm going to do the same thing, but I think I'm justified. I'm going to say Sweetback's Badass Song and Superfly because Sweetback's Badass Song I don't define as a black spectation film, but it's really the film pointed to sort of setting the whole thing off. And then you got to watch Superfly because Superfly has so much of what we've been talking about, right? Those problematic and also radical currents, the, the history of our kind of strange sojourn in American cinema, with the with the good, bad, beautiful, and ugly in it, there's a whole study um, that Superfly raises in terms of the Black Power movement's you know influence and their critique of it or their embrace of it, and you know other people's the NAACP's critique of it and our sort of um, antipathy to it. Yet it was you know it was a hit, right? It was it was you know a hit movie, and it's continued to be this iconic film with an iconic character in Freeze that that came to live, to still live in hip-hop, which is why, as I say, you know, imagine Snoop without that character. I can't. Okay. I feel like that's a really solid list with some really solid reasoning to it. So I think I got a little bit of homework. Stephanie, thank you for speaking with us today, and thank you for this list. You're welcome. Thank you all for tuning in. Before we go, we've got a quick message from Divine Joy Randolph, who stars as Lady Reed in Dolomite is My Name. She's the voice of reason, she's the heart. There's a level where it's maternal, it's intimate, it's affectionate, in which he needs that sounding board. Do you know what I mean? Of moments where he feels insecure, like he has the passion, but he needs that second voice of reassurance so that then he can go out and do it. Check out Dolomite Is My Name out on Netflix right now. Share your thoughts about the show by tweeting our friends at Strong Black Lead. This show is a collaboration between Netflix's Strong Black Lead and Pineapple Street Studios. Special thanks to executive producers Jasmine Lawson, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Shout out my producers, Agarena Shishagre and Jess Jupiter. Our original music is by Daoud Anthony. Tell your friends about the show and make sure to rate and subscribe There's Something About Dolomite on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. That's our show, and we'll see you all next week.